Welcome to HIV Unmuted, the IAS International AIDS Society's podcast. I'm your host, Femi O.K. It's now been 40 years since AIDS was first reported. Our last episode focused on the emergence of AIDS in 1981 and the failed promise of a vaccine which, 40 years on, still remains elusive. We now move to the discovery of HIV in 1983, the virus which causes AIDS, believed to have originated in chimpanzees. The discovery of HIV provided the first big scientific step forward and hope for treatment. Let's go back to the start of 1983, just before the virus that causes AIDS was discovered. As far as Neil Blewett, Australia's new health minister, knew, AIDS wasn't a priority. It was on the 12th of March, 1983, the day after the new government, Australian government, was sworn in. I had this meeting with all the members of the health, all the senior members of the health department who were to brief me on uh, their understanding of labour policies. And then in the afternoon of the meeting, there came this thing called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. And they also told me that we'd had no cases in Australia. Now, that was incorrect because uh, the first case in Australia had occurred at late 1982, but the state government had not yet reported it to the Commonwealth government. Now, I'd vaguely known of the issue in the United States, but I hadn't, it hadn't really hit my health conscience in any sense. I just picked it up in Time magazine and things like that. Unaware that AIDS was already in Australia, the new health minister focused on other matters. But it was partly because of the other big health issues that in that period, if anything, there was uh, not the attention that perhaps should have been paid to it. For instance, my prime minister had given me instructions that the new national health scheme had to be in place by February 1984. The task is to win the future for Australia and all Australians. In the United States, AIDS cases were increasing to concerning levels. Vince Chris Ostomo, a Pacific Islander AIDS activist, recalls when he learned of his own diagnosis. I remember I thought I had strep throat. I went to this clinic and when they found out I was a gay man, they said, oh, you need to go, go here. And so I went to this other clinic and um, the doctor Somehow I was talked into getting an HIV test. And then I thought, well, it's not going to matter because I'm not going to have it. And so a month later, I got home and there was a card that said, please come back to the clinic. We need to talk to you about your test. So then I went back. The doctor started talking about HIV and AIDS, kept talking, and then she blurted out, you're HIV positive. And I had to stop her again and say, what does that mean? She goes, it means you've been exposed to HIV and most likely you'll develop AIDS. So my first thing was, well, how long do I have to live? was 28 and she said, but um, I don't expect that you'll see 30. There was no treatment, no support at all and continued apathy from world leaders. I mean, it was years before the administration at that time did anything or said anything. In Australia, it took the stories of three babies with AIDS to galvanize the nation. It wasn't until 15 months into the government, that suddenly in Queensland, three uh, babies died of AIDS as a result of uh, blood transfusions in hospitals. It occurred during an election, or on the eve of an election as well, so the Prime Minister was very concerned that we take action. And from then on, AIDS was central 
in Australian politics. Like in Australia, it was a very public death that shook the US into action. AIDS had already taken a heavy toll on America's gay population, but it wasn't until the US president's good friend, actor Rock Hudson, died of AIDS that President Reagan spoke out. We've declared AIDS public health enemy number one. But Reagan's speech didn't stop the fear. Um, I remember being walking with a friend of mine in the village and him running into another friend, a woman who was clearly a mother and was pushing a, a baby in a stroller. And my friend went to go say hello to the baby and she, she said, stop. And it was a little freaky. You know, they weren't worried about him doing anything to the child. It was they were worried about the child getting, getting AIDS. In Australia, fear that AIDS would begin to spread in the heterosexual population led public health authorities to launch the infamous Grim Reaper ads. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The Grim Reaper was essentially the result of the International AIDS Conference, I think, in 1986, when the, uh, our representatives at that international conference in Paris came back alarmed by the evidence of the heterosexual spread of AIDS in Africa. It was a pretty memorable advertisement. I mean, Australians still today talk about the Grim Reaper advertisements. In retrospect, I have some uh, worries about that. I mean, I don't think I allowed sufficiently for the pain it would cause people with the disease because here's the Grim Reaper, the symbol of death and the disease. I'm sure that uh, uh, that did affect people in ways that were sad. On the other hand, it did have a, a massive impact, perhaps too big an impact because suddenly our testing centres were overwhelmed with heterosexuals seeking to have tests that they didn't have the disease. Fear was a powerful tool. Authorities the world over hoped it would create caution, but it also stoked shame and stigma. The tenor was all over the place. You had people in denial who would, you know, who would um, deal with it by drinking more. You had people that were terribly afraid and very fearful. And I guess the other feeling that was very prevalent was just shock. And you had all these beautiful young people just dying. Vince was one of the lucky ones. He's now 60 years old, director of aging services at San Francisco AIDS Foundation and living in a time where HIV can be well managed if you have access to care and medication. Neil Blewett is credited with paving the way for Australia's forward-thinking response to HIV. Australia now plans to end HIV transmission by 2025, a goal made possible by the discovery in 1983 of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. When they discovered HIV, it meant that it wasn't us, that it was a virus, that it was something that was happening outside of us and that we could protect ourselves. And throughout our time with education, one thing we told people was the one thing we know is that it's preventable. 
it removed a lot of the mystery about the disease. We now knew, in a sense, the identity of the enemy. The discovery of HIV paved the way for the treatment and prevention options that we rely on today. These would not have been possible without our next guest, Professor Francoise Barre-Sinoussi, the co-discoverer of HIV. In 2008, she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her work. Francoise, it's so great to talk to you. And when people talk about HIV science, they always talk about you in the same breath. When? Did you get involved with HIV science? I started uh, really, uh, let's say, by the end of uh, 1982. Uh, at that time, I was working already on uh, the family of viruses called retroviruses and the relationship between retroviruses and cancer or leukemia. The doctors in France uh, who uh, were uh, taking care of the, the first AIDS patient in their hospital, came to us at the Pasteur Institute because they knew that we were working on retroviruses to ask a simple question. Uh, do you think that uh, a retrovirus could be the cause of the, this new emerging uh, disease? I remember that time as being this very mysterious, scary time, and a lot of people were dying. As a scientist, how do you remember that time? It has been really very difficult period. I mean, very hard. Uh, because as a scientist, of course, even after we isolate uh, the virus, we knew that it will take time uh, after the identification of the causative agent and the development of uh, treatment and the development uh, of vaccine. So it was a controversy, you know, uh, between the scientist and the human being. That was very, very uh, hard. In, in addition, you know, as a scientist, that was the first time in my life to uh, meet patients because I'm not a doctor originally. But the patients were coming to us asking simple questions. Uh, what is this virus? What are you going to do to cure us? And what to answer to them? We knew that it will be long and we knew that they will probably be dying before we have any treatment. So that was a terrible period. At what point did you realize how big the AIDS epidemic was. When did you know? The magnitude of the epidemic, I guess, probably uh, end of 1984, uh, 1985. It's a period where we started to realize what was going on in Africa, where uh, people were dying of AIDS over there. And uh, initially, we did not know because also the decision makers in th those countries were against, you know, uh, telling the world that uh, they have this disease. I was looking earlier on today at some pictures of the Nobel Prize ceremony from 2008. And there's King Gustav of Sweden, Queen Sylvia of Sweden, the Swedish royal family, and then you. And right now, you are pretty much royalty in the HIV AIDS world. But at that time, when you were standing there with your Nobel Prize. That's 
that's not the, the way I feel. By the way, for, <laughs> ask young people; they will just say yes. You're 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 royalty in the world of science and HIV science. You're you're right up there. But what did that? What did that achievement with your colleagues mean? The, the ceremony in, in, in Stockholm. It was a lot of stress for me. By the way. Because uh, you know it's a lot of media. You are with the majesty. You are everything is perfectly organized, but it's quite magic at the same time to be there. Francoise, in this series, we're going to be talking to activists and we're going to be talking to scientists. Do you describe yourself as an activist? Uh, I'm not sure myself. Uh, some activists are saying that. No, not me. I'm not sure that I'm an activist. Uh, what I'm sure is that I cannot accept injustice. I cannot accept the inequity. <laughs> I cannot accept discrimination and repressive measure against uh, some people in the world, uh, particularly those affected by disease like HIV, but even not only HIV. So maybe the reason that some people say that I'm and I'm an activist, and but I I can tell you the first I think the first activist who says that I took it as the most important compliment that I never received in my life. <laughs> Even in retirement, I know you stay in touch and up to date with HIV research. How close are we to having a cure? I would love to answer to that question, but uh, I, 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 I don't know. Personally, I don't know at all. I'm not sure we can really uh, think about a cure. But personally, I prefer to think about a treatment you know, that will induce remission, long life, lifelong remission. That will be already great. The only thing I can tell you is uh, but I'm not sure that my dream, you know, will be realized. I, one of my dreams will be to leave this, uh, this world and uh, having say, seeing the, the remission for HIV, that will be uh, really great. But whether I will see it or not, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. What is the proudest scientific moment? in your life? Uh, I remember one when I was in, in a developing country at the, at the moment of the announcement of the Nobel Prize. I was in Southeast Asia. And I, after the announcement, several people, including people living with HIV, came to me for congratulations and they came to me with flower. But they were, you know, uh, they, they have tears on their, on, on their face. So they were crying. So I asked them, why, why are you crying? And, and the answer of one of them was, because uh, we are thinking about the other who did not have the chance to meet you and are not alive anymore. Uh, and that made me, you know, I remember this moment. I don't know if it is that I was proud, but at least this is the moment I was thinking to myself, this Nobel Prize will be very important, not for me. It will be important to try to be the voice of those people, to be the voice of the others. 
such an incredible inspiration whose scientific efforts continue to be crucial to the HIV response today. And now, another inspirational woman, an AIDS activist in South Africa, who is openly living with HIV. And she's going to help bust some long-standing myths around HIV. Hi everyone, I'm Wesega Dubula, an activist in South Africa. The first myth to bust is that AIDS was a US disease that only affected gay men and that women could not get it. It's not true that HIV was only in, in America in the 80s. HIV was present in South Africa, in the mines. In the mid 80s, HIV was found amongst pregnant women, black pregnant women, particularly black African pregnant women in Johannesburg and parts of KwaZulu-Natal. Another myth is that access to scientific advances such as HIV treatment was equally available across the world. Not true. I think there's nothing horrible done to be diagnosed with a disease and be told on the very same day that there is no treatment for that disease. Why were you tested in the first place? At the time when I went for my HIV test in 2001, many people in the US were living longer from the same disease I, I had because they had access to treatment. Uh, and we didn't have access to antitrovirus in South Africa. So basically we were left to die from a preventable and manageable disease. And that drove me to the streets. Thank you to all our guests. Here's a final thought. What started off as a condition seemingly linked to gay communities soon turned into a global pandemic. By the end of 1985, every region in the world had reported at least one case of AIDS. The discovery of HIV was one of the early scientific breakthroughs that changed everything. With the virus known, target treatments became available, tests and preventative measures could be taken. And this discovery would shape the next four decades of HIV cure research. But the issue of equitable access to the science prevails even today. I think now is the time to reflect and say, we need that global civil society solidarity together to until there is an end to the patent regime. The patent regime must fall. It must fall particularly for essential medicines. It was just as important then as it is now to follow the science. And we must stand on the shoulders of the scientists and activists who came before us if we are ever to end AIDS. Share your story. Join the conversation online with the hashtag HIVUnmuted for a chance to win an IAS membership. On our next episode, we'll continue our journey through the HIV response as we move towards the 1990s, a decade that saw the advent of effective treatment, activists focusing on pharma companies, and campaigners fighting to make treatment accessible to all. This is HIV Unmuted. And like our title says, it can't keep us quiet. Subscribe to the IAS podcast, HIV Unmuted, wherever you get your podcasts.